I will call upon the Lord. That song and the others that we've already sung, so encouraging, so challenging, so uplifting. The messages of the songs that we sing so often are so penetrating. I know that we enjoy singing them, and in fact, as we sing with the Spirit and with the understanding, it not only, of course, is hopefully a blessing to God and that which He so greatly and lovingly enjoys, but it certainly encourages you and me as well as we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs. As we mentioned this morning and as it continues to this day, we're so thankful, of course, to be able to assemble and that God has looked upon us with favor in that way. And just as Gary mentioned earlier, certainly we do want to continue to wish each of the mothers a lovely Mother's Day. Hope that it will be a very positive and a very encouraging and certainly a blessed occasion for you. From time to time, there are questions that are asked, and perhaps as I feel those questions, as I slip them into Bible study portions or at times develop sermons around them, that is the source of the consideration this evening. You'll notice the title that I've given to the lesson is Two with One Taken. And the lesson text is the one that we noted just a moment ago as it was read before us in Luke, the 17th chapter. Would you please be turning to that chapter as we will spend quite a bit of time this evening looking at the latter portion, at least the latter section of it. As we build up to some of those things, this initial slide will be one that I hope will at least motivate us and send us on our path of consideration relative to the lesson tonight. We remember as Paul opened the Galatian letter in Galatians 1 verse 4, he very plainly said that as we are those who escape the character of this world and the evil at least that is coming our way by virtue of it, we do so through the marvelous wonder of the Christ. Surely in light of that, we notice as we study the sacred word of God, we encounter passages on occasion that challenge us in that we know they're inspired and we know they are the truth of God but they aren't as easy to interpret or at least as easy to decipher as certain other passages are. Even Peter understood that truth. In 2 Peter 3.16, he even commented that very truth, but you and I know so well that thy word is truth, to borrow the language of Psalm 119, verse 160. And thus, as you and I rightly divide the sacred text, we find that even in those difficult passages, they challenge us, but they encourage us, and we often find marvelous nuggets of truth that are in fact expressed within them. Tonight it may be that way as we come to this passage because we will hear a familiar ring to it as we compare it to others. But this one's different. I wonder what is the matter concerning these last few verses of Luke 17. As we come to the bottom of that slide, may I suggest that really verses 20 through 37 of this particular chapter all have a powerful ring of harmony to them. So let's, in fact, at this moment, let's read the entirety of them. If you'd like to listen, I'm going to read Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse number 20. And when he was demanded to the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there, go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation." 
And as it was in the days of Noe, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noe entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop, and his stuff is in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, and the other shall be left." Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. I'm sure we each can imagine that at least an appropriate title to a fair amount of this will surround what I've used at the top of this slide. There's a discussion of the coming of the kingdom. In fact, throughout these verses that you and I just read, our Lord presented a very memorable series of discussions and thoughts relative to the character of the kingdom. You noticed with me, verse 20, what it was that prompted our Lord's discussion on this occasion. It said there, And when He was demanded of the Pharisees, It wasn't unusual for the Pharisees and Sadducees and others to approach our Master and ask Him a question. Sometimes they had sinister motives, quite frankly. They often hoped to catch Him in a dilemma. Here on this occasion, we notice they demanded of Him. They insisted that He give them a discussion, a description. And the setting of verse 20 is, "...when the kingdom of God should come." They had no doubt frequently heard Jesus perhaps make comments about the coming kingdom. Would you notice this particular slide with me? The kingdom had been a rather frequent part of the descriptions of our Master. Back in Matthew 3 verse 2, even John the Immerser preached, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. One chapter later, in Matthew 4 17, Jesus preached the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You and I know so well that the description... The consideration of the kingdom there has to do with the church. The kingdom wasn't far into the future in light of its establishment. You and I know then that there are certain references in which the phrase the kingdom has in view the nature of that wonderful church, the greatness of its establishment, the reality of its existence. Later in the New Testament, we have passages that in fact affirm that that was the case. In Colossians chapter 3, verse number, or rather Colossians 1, verse 13, as Paul began that Colossian letter, he commented to them they'd been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The kingdom had been established by that point. It was a reality. And Paul and they were thankful that they could be members of it, citizens in that marvelous kingdom. But you and I know that there are other ways in which the word kingdom is sometimes employed. And you'll notice here that in these passages it sounds different. 
I would call to your attention Matthew 25, beginning really in verse 1, but you'll notice that there are other occasions in that same chapter. We each remember the unforgettable scene in which the Lord taught a parable having to do with ten virgins, five of whom were were wise and five of whom were not wise. They were foolish. And yet as He began that parable, it was a parable concerning the kingdom of heaven. Now, you and I, as we reflect upon the wisdom that comes with preparation, we know very well that was in a setting in which our Savior was teaching not about a near event, but rather the event concerning the eternal nature, standing before God in judgment and being ready. Preparation. But what about later in that same chapter in verses 14 and following? The parable of the talents. A man had five and he was wise. Another, of course, had two and he was also wise. But there was a one-talent man who chose not to put into practice and utility what he'd been given He was pronounced a very unwise man. That again is given in light of the finality of the judgment and living wisely for God each day. Notice the kingdom was used in in those two references and so many others as well as it relates to not simply a near event such as the church but that finality, basically heaven itself, being right with God. It is with those things in mind, would you note with me, that Jesus frequently talked about the kingdom. In fact, the gospel according to Matthew, those 28 chapters, often we find in Matthew especially a discussion of kingdom, a consideration of it. Maybe it's in light of that we come to the following observations. And I would ask you to note with care with me the following. Because this is what sounds so familiar In Matthew chapter 24, if you'd like to hold your finger here in Luke 17 and go back to Matthew 24 for just a moment, we find in that particular chapter a number of ideas that sound so similar to those we've just read from Luke 17. In fact, as Matthew 24 begins, (coughs) excuse me, as Matthew 24 begins, the apostles, at least a subset of them, approached Jesus and asked Him a question. Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, what prompted that question was, is as they were exiting Jerusalem, Jesus made comment concerning the, the pillars of the temple and the stones upon which it was erected. And Jesus very directly said, I'm telling you, the day is coming when not one stone shall be left on another. They were a bit aghast at that statement. In fact, they wondered how could such a thing be? Those stones were so large and they seemed so solid and so unmovable. And so when they reached the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives, four of them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, came to Jesus privately and they said, Lord, tell us, when shall these things be? Now what things were they talking about? When will those stones be overturned? When will this temple be destroyed you just talked about a few minutes ago? But then they ask him two more questions. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They transition from that immediate consideration, that immediate question, into a distant matter touching the end of time. When will your coming be in the final analysis? That, of course, will be the end of the world. Maybe in light of those things, 
you'll notice then that what we then read in Matthew 24, and might I ask you to notice, in verse number 27, lightning is referenced. But you and I just noted that was mentioned in Luke 17. So here is something that we see mentioned in both occasions. Another thing that you'll immediately notice also in that second in that passage of Matthew 24. If you'll look with me to verse 37, Noah is mentioned. And we just read about him in Luke 17. That's just two instances and there are more. Without using all of our time at least to see all the parallels... Let's go ahead and notice something if I could ask you to note at this point. These two were extremely different. Although there were some similarities in terms of matters mentioned, the two were given on different occasions, and it appears they were given to very different audiences. Let's highlight briefly what some of those distinctions were. First of all, in Luke chapter 17. This particular discussion on the part of Jesus took place a number of weeks before the final week of His life. We know that for the following reason. Beginning in Luke 9 verse 51 and continuing all the way into Luke 18 verse 14, we have a unique section to the book of Luke. In other words, what's found in those chapters isn't in any of the other gospel accounts. As you think about the way that begins and what's contained in that section... It is a discussion of the Lord on His journey, His final journey to Jerusalem. He, in fact, He even identified to those apostles along the way, what's going to happen to me when I get there? Now, as you think about what transpired and what was revealed then in, say, that Luke 17 passage, remember again, that took place and the Lord hadn't even made it to Jericho yet, and yet He had already delivered the scene of Luke 17. Now come over to Matthew 24. This took place on the Tuesday that our Lord was crucified, or rather, He was crucified only two days later. This was two days before His crucifixion, the Tuesday of crucifixion week. Notice again, the time was different. Several weeks, at least several days, separated the two discussions. The setting here was different. He was just outside Jerusalem, really. He was going to die two days later. The Lord knew very well the cross was immediately in His future and what He revealed in Matthew 24 was a final analysis of Jerusalem's destruction and also what would befall concerning the nature of the end of time when He would return again. Remember, these were prompted by the questions the apostles asked. And so when Jesus came to the Mount of Olives, He revealed what you and I would call Matthew chapter 24. Maybe it's in light of those distinctions we see again how that the two discussions were on different occasions. That didn't mean, though, that sometimes the Lord could use something similar from one to help reveal a truth in the other one. And we'll see that in just a moment. It is with that in mind that could we then come to the bottom. As we come to appreciate then the setting of Luke chapter 17, return with me, if you would, to verse 20. And when he was demanded... Of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. This kingdom to which Jesus referred, he rather immediately affirmed, it doesn't come with observation. The Pharisees, apparently by inserting, they demanded of him about the coming of the kingdom. They were looking primarily, you see, for a physical coming of a kingdom. 
they often had deluded themselves into that way of thinking, and Jesus corrected them more than once. Later in John chapter 18, the Lord Himself will say, My kingdom is not of this world. As Jesus made that statement in John 18, 36, He settled in the mind of all of those who appreciate the truth that the greatest desire and appreciation of that truth, it was never intended by God to be a physical matter. The Old Testament prophets had so often foretold of this kingdom that once established it would never be destroyed, Daniel 2.44. And they had even spoken about the spiritual rule and reign in the hearts and lives of men and women. Here Jesus said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And then He expounded upon that in the next verse. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The Greek text, it seems, could perhaps have been better rendered by saying, The kingdom of God's in the midst of you. That kingdom, once established, as we noted a moment ago, it would in fact last until the end of time. It would be an age-lasting thing. That kingdom's in the midst of you. That marvelous kingdom, once established, it would in fact last until the finality of the end, and it would remain in the midst. It's not to be looked for something yet to come. That's one of the matters we've often noted about premillennialism. Who look yet for a coming kingdom and yet we're told here the kingdom's in the midst of you. It is not something for which we yet seek. It's not something we yet look to come in some future day. Surely in light of those things you'll notice inasmuch as this kingdom was in the midst of them. That was only the first of a number of wonderful things Jesus had to say about it. As you'll notice near the top of this slide, you'll notice that Jesus made a statement that in fact rung with an element of interest in light of those apostles of that day. Would you note with me verse 22? And He said unto the disciples... So notice again, as the Lord was making this trek and journey to Jerusalem, it was on this occasion he especially called the attention of the disciples and it was to them that he said in verse 22, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And he thus highlighted here the time is going to come when after my departure there will be a desire. You will wish that perhaps... I could still be here to answer questions or that I could offer a degree of appreciation. They had so often been blessed with His presence. They could go to ask Him questions. They could, in fact, seek His wisdom directly. That was already to be noted that there was going to be some that were going to make themselves out to be a false Christ. They're going to make the claim to have a degree of Messiahship Jesus said here in verses 22 and 23, See here or see there, go not after them, he said, nor follow them. You and I today have still often been in a position to note the existence of some who gather a following. They paint themselves out to be a rather noteworthy individual. We remember James Jones a few years ago and his followers even to the point of taking their own life because he said to do it. Can you believe that? Some who would have so much confidence in a man and be so deluded by him to think that he was the emissary of heaven, 
to think that he was in light of the consideration of a Christ? Jesus said, don't go after them. Don't follow them. Don't have confidence that they are these individuals who in fact have lifted themselves up to a far different position than any man should ever, ever even believe he could come. Maybe in light of that, could you note what's next? The claims of men and the uncertainties that come with them. What about verse number 23 in the way that it ends? Go not after them, nor follow them. As the Lord continues onward, verse 24. For as the lightning, for as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part, uh, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. At this point we begin to notice, as we mentioned earlier, there is a description in Matthew 24 about lightning. And there, make no mistake, Jesus used it there to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. He used it to describe what was to occur only a few years into the future from that day, and it was Jerusalem's destruction at the hands of the Romans. But make note here, He's using lightning in a very different presentation. It has nothing to do with Jerusalem's destruction here. It has to do with the end of time. And you'll note what He says. He uses it to highlight certainty. Think of it like this with me. On a dark summer evening, the lightning strikes or shines in a particular part. Does everyone know it? Sure we do. On a dark night, it's clear we understand what lightning strike is. We also understand the brilliance of it. Make no mistake. Jesus says the same thing's going to be true relative to the end of time. There will be no mistaking my coming. There may be false Christ between now and then, and there may be men who make claims about things, but those claims are filled with uncertainty, and they're claimed, and they're filled with matters which certainly are not true. When it comes to the end of time, every eye will see Him. We're told that in Revelation 1-7. Every eye shall see Him when He comes. There will be no misunderstanding on anyone's part. Even the most noteworthy heathen will admit the Master has come. Jesus the Christ is here. He's going to come with clouds. Every eye will see Him. Not only that, could we note some more? You and I are even encouraged in Revelation 22. In light of His second coming as faithful Christians, in fact, we even look forward to that event. We are such that we're even taught that even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We would even be of a mindset to desire His coming because we're ready for it. You see, we know that just like Paul, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Didn't Paul feel that way in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21? Maybe it is with those thoughts in mind. We're ready to see what else the Master told us. At this point, Jesus quickly commented about this. Verse 25, But first... Must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation? That present generation, Jesus said, are going to reject me, and the Son of Man's going to suffer. That's that wonderful description involving crucifixion. That was going to happen. And then following that, he says there would be rejection. Notice again, first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. You and I know that many generations since have seemingly turned such a rebellious ear to the matter of the Master. Isn't it beautiful 
to think then about the few who love the Lord, who love His Word, and who desire to be faithful to Him. As you and I look even even further, isn't it true that we arrive now at verses 26 and following? Noah comes into our description. Consider this with me. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Something very much like the days of Noah, the Lord used as a description of what it's going to be like at His second coming. Verse 27, Lord, what is this description? What is the comparison? He says, they did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. In other words, those of Noah's day, Noah preached to them. 2 Peter 2 verse 5 tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. He set before them the coming destruction and the coming anger of God in light of the iniquity and sin that had overwhelmed the world. But his preaching had, was such that only eight souls, including himself, were saved. You'll notice they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. They proceeded with life as usual, focusing upon the matters of the flesh, focusing on the matters of the earth. But then it says this in verse 27, Until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. I wonder what it's going to be like on the final day of judgment. You and I can so often envision it, and no doubt it happened much like this. As Noah pleaded with them and encouraged them and strove to insist that they understand what was coming, they had no interest in hearing what he had to say. Remember, Hebrews eleven seven says that nothing like that rain had ever happened. And yet, as Noah told them what was coming, the time finally came that God shut the door of that ark. I wonder what they thought when the waters did start to come. When the fountains of the great deep were broken up and also the clouds in the heavens above began to pour forth that water upon the earth. I can only imagine the pounding that must have happened on the side of the ark. Let us in now, Noah. We'll be happy to hear you preaching. It's too late now. It's too late now. Don't you know that much on the day of judgment is going to sound a little bit like that? Perhaps those who have had individuals, friends, families, neighbors, others who have inserted, please come to the worship. Don't you care about the soul salvation? Don't, don't you have an interest in what Jesus did for you? And they'll say, well, maybe another time. Not today. Maybe you see like Agrippa, they're waiting for a more convenient season. But you see, it may well be that convenient season for so many never comes. And they pass from the scenes of this life unready to meet the Master and unready for judgment. And on that day of judgment, I'm sure they'll be happy. Oh, I'd love to hear a gospel sermon now. I'll be the first one down that aisle. But it's too late now. It's too late now. Just like it was in the days of Noah, it destroyed them all except those aboard the ark. What about the next verse, verse 28? Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. One more time, Jesus dipped back into history and used the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. The days of Lot. You see, there are those who sometimes are quick to tell us those early chapters of Genesis were just a story, a nicely told fable. May you and I never believe that. 
Those are literal events. And Jesus said there was a man named Noah. And there really was a flood in his day. And there really was a lot of destruction. And it's going to be just like that at the end of time. I'll tell you something else he said. There really was a city called Sodom. And there really was a city called Gomorrah. And there really was a man named Lot who lived there. And verse 28 says, Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. They proceeded with the life as usual, giving no thought to God and to heaven. It says though in verse 29, But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. There was another great dis- description of destruction, wasn't there? Here, Lot... And at least initially, his wife and two daughters made it out of the city. But later in verse number 32, Jesus is going to mention something about Lot's wife. Even she ultimately didn't make it. She turned back, we remember, became a pillar of salt. But Jesus forevermore said, remember Lot's wife. You see, the Lord was teaching a rather valiant lesson on this occasion, wasn't He? Think about the end of time. Or at least in the near future, think about your your passing, your death and mine. Once we leave the fleshly scenes of this life, all preparatory time is lost and gone. As you can see in verse 29 and those verses that preceded it, in Jesus' day as well as their own, there is such a temptation to focus on the physical things of this life. Buying and selling and getting gain, marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking... We pay so much attention to the physical body. And if we only do that, giving no thought to the spirit within, oh, what an eternally disastrous mistake we make. Jesus said that's what they did in in Sodom's day and in Noah's day. At this point, the Lord didn't nearly finish because could I ask you to note the thunderous nature of verse 30? Even thus... Just after discussing Noah and just after discussing Lot, he said, even thus, he said, I'm telling you, just like it was then, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The end of time is going to be much like this. Destruction for so many. God's not going to take pleasure in in destroying anybody. But they rejected His Son. They rejected the gospel. They didn't make preparation, just like the five foolish virgins. They had opportunity to, but didn't. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. At that point then in verse 31, In that day, that day the Son of Man is revealed, He which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff's in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that's in the field, let him likewise not return back. That's the Lord's poetic way of describing, don't you understand, that the physical things that so often can be the thoroughness of life, don't ever think that it's really that way. And I know that we each are so tempted in that regard to place all the emphasis upon our bank account and our car and our house and the possessions we've got, and we enjoy these things, and by themselves they are not wrong. But if they come to the point where we elevate them above Christ, above the church, above God, we are idolaters. And we find ourselves under the very consideration of description of what he calls here destruction. It's a constant reminder, isn't it? 
little children, keep yourselves from idols. That wasn't just written in the Old Testament. It was written in the New Testament. That quotation is from the very last verse of the book of 1 John. 1 John 5, verse 21. Keep yourselves from idols. Because of those thoughts now, with the light of the matters of this day, let's now finish the chapter. We've already highlighted verse 32. Let's come to verse 33. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. That sounds like Matthew 16, doesn't it? It sounds exactly like the appreciation there when Jesus said to those who seek to save their life here, your life in this flesh is the most important. He says if you do that, you're going to lose your eternal life because you're going to give all your focus to this life and you won't seek the kingdom first. But on the other hand, he says... Those who lose their life will preserve it. When you lose your life by giving it to Christ, by following Him completely, by in fact being totally immersed in that which is His will, then you'll save your life. With that thought in mind, look at how then verse number 34 presents it. I tell you, he said, In that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Remember, he said, that night. One of the first things we then notice is, what does this tell us about the second coming of the Master? Did you notice he uses the word night? But that's odd. For you'll notice in the next verse, it's two women doing something that's done in the daytime. What do we conclude about the coming of Christ? Well, that's easy to appreciate, isn't it? Around this globe, we know that half of it's in darkness and half of it's in light. When Jesus comes back, part of the world, it's going to be nighttime when He comes. And part of the world is going to be in the daylight hours. You and I still don't know, of course, the specific day that's going to be. But we do know whenever it is, it's going to be night for somebody. And it's going to be daylight for other people. Back to verse 34. In that night, He said, there shall be two in one bed. In the original language, the word men was not in that language. It just says, in that night there shall be two in one bed. We are then given an appreciation, and maybe this would lead us to wonder, is he talking here about homosexual activity? Is he talking about two men literally undergoing that kind of intercourse in which, in the consideration of gayness, that is that what Jesus is describing? The answer is no. Because notice how the verse ends. He says, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. One of these individuals was pleasing to Christ and the other wasn't. Now, if they were having homosexual activity, neither of them would have been. According to Romans 1, verses 26 and following, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following, and 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. So the Lord isn't giving an endorsement in any way to a matter in homosexual activity. What He is saying is this. Two will be in one bed. They're not undergoing or doing anything that's inappropriate. But he says one is taken and the other's left. He's highlighting the individual character correspondent to the judgment. Notice again the individual nature. Each person stands before God with regard to the duties and obligations that God has given him. One of them had been dutiful concerning the matters God had given to him, and as such he was taken, just like Noah was. He was found faithful. But on the other hand, the other one wasn't. 
look at the women of the next verse. Two women shall be grinding. That takes us back to a day when women would gather at a central location there in the city and there would be a large wheel and they'd roll it around on the grain that they had poured out on the hard surface and they'd use that to grind the meal. And as the women would come and take care of that, Jesus said, one woman will be taken, the other left. One of them was right before God, but the other one wasn't. It was another individual matter, wasn't it? At this point, might we notice verse number 36. This verse is not in the most ancient presentations of the New Testament Scriptures. It is basically inserted in later particular manuscripts. Two men shall be in the field, the one taken and the other left. The principle is the same for that passage. It seems to read almost identically to one section in Matthew chapter 24. One more time, daylight for some, darkness for others. When our Master returns, but every eye will see Him, the individual nature of the judgment is a beautiful and highlighted thing. You and I won't stand before the God of heaven on that day as the Pippin Church of Christ. We won't be saved by families or by congregations. We won't be saved by nations or counties or citizenships. We'll be judged individually. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, to quote Romans 14, 12. Aren't we reminded in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. In Revelation 22, 12, it's highlighted in language like, Each one will be judged according to the deeds of his body. I would submit to you that there's a sweet message in that. It's an individual matter, isn't it? It's a very penetrating truth, don't you think? You and I know that the Jews often considered their whole family and the salvation that came by being born into it. Thanks be unto God, you and I, as we're judged individually, it brings us to appreciate some of these thoughts as well. The comparison that we've seen to the days of Noah, the comparison to the days of Lot. Jesus said, it's going to be like that when I come back. Are you ready for him to come back? Am I ready for him to come back? He says, didn't he? Then verse number 37, the last verse of the chapter. Wheresoever the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now maybe as you and I think about that description, it sounds a bit unfavorable. We know what carrion's like when a car hits an animal and then the vultures or buzzards and other kinds of vermin will, will, will take care of it. You'll notice here Jesus says, just as surely as those animals, they find their way to, to these things that, that, are, that are dead, He says, I'm coming back. May you and I strive to be ready. Always living faithfully until death. As you and I have studied from Luke 17 tonight, it brings us to think a little bit about certainly the nature of our own preparation and the nature of our own life. Are you a faithful servant of the Master? If you are, may you continue to live that way all throughout life knowing the blessing that's yours. But if you're not tonight, maybe you've never become a Christian. There was a scene at the old rugged cross centuries ago where the Son of God took your place. He shed His blood for you. He died that you might live. 
He died that heaven might be your final home. But now the decision's yours. Will you obey Him? Will you put Him on in baptism? The plan of salvation reads that you must believe in Him, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. In light of the coming day of judgment, don't you want to make ready? The baptismal waters are ready. We'd be honored to assist you and so happy to do it tonight. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful, you maybe have lost sight of that end of time. You've began to live carelessly. You've lived without the focus that you know Jesus would want you to have. Why not come back to your first love tonight? Again, we've noted that one will be taken and one will be left. Wouldn't it be awful to think about approaching that day and maybe your son or your daughter taken, but not you? Or maybe your parent, but not you? Or maybe you, but not one of them? Don't you want to not only be ready, but help make sure others are too? If we could help you in any way tonight in that regard, we'd be happy to pray to God on your behalf that He would forgive you of those sins. You, of course, must confess them and repent of them. If we could be of assistance to anyone tonight, it would be our joy to assist you and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.